0: And take your Bibles and go to the book of Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10 in verse number 23 is what we're going to begin our reading in just a few moments. I want to just kind of bring you up to speed again where we're at in our text through the book of Mark, or our journey through the book of Mark here. Uh, last time we met two weeks ago in the book of Mark, um, we talked to you from the account of the rich young ruler. Uh, we do not find in Mark's gospel that he was young or that he was a ruler, but we find that from Matthew and Luke's account that he was the young ruler. Uh, and we put all of that together. And of course, uh, even sometimes even in your heading uh, of your Bible in Mark, it'll say the rich young ruler. And so we have this account of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and how that Jesus sees him coming. And there is um, then the discussion about where he is and how he's kept the law and then he goes away sorrowful and really a very sad note and then Jesus is going to pivot his teaching now and begin to teach and so this is where we find ourselves with the rich young ruler you know and here's the thing about possessions possessions are not a problem until they possess you until they have a hold of us that's when they become a problem um, and I think this is exactly where we find the beginning place in Mark chapter number 10, verse 23. So if you found your place there, let's stand and read the word of God together. If you're able to stand with me. In verse number 23, the Bible says, And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly or how difficult shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard or how difficult it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying, Among themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus, looking upon them, said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospel's, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren, sisters and mothers, children and lands, with persecution, in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last. 1st let's pray together father we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of god this morning or do a work in us and through us this morning that only you can do may our ears be open may our eyes be open to see and behold the truth or with the psalmist open thou mine eyes that i may behold wondrous things out of thy law and may that be the case this morning thank you for your people in jesus precious name amen you can be seated there if you would Money uh, is a great blessing, wealth, and we would probably not measure ourselves as wealthy people. However, when you compare our standing with that of the world around us, we are beyond wealthy. Wealthy doesn't even really describe it. Uh, the, The fact is, in our society, we are blessed that even the poorest among us have access to things that the majority of the world would have no concept of. Uh, And we can get very jaded um, and even very envious in our own context of always wanting more. uh, Because we measure everything by the base of what we have. And uh, we never think of ourselves as being wealthy, but somebody else always has more than I do. And we look in that manner. This rich young ruler who had come to Jesus has just walked away. And as he walks away from the Lord, and Brother Mike, I seem to have an echo is anybody else hearing an echo as well? I do have an echo. All right, it may be here, but considering who's nodding their head, that very well could be, um, but um, it seems to be that I have an echo this morning, and uh, so if I need to pull this back some, I can do that too. Does that help? I'm closer is better. I'm better. All right, I got it right up there. All right. So the rich young ruler has just walked away from the Lord, and this man had great wealth. And Jesus sent him packing. And what we find is that in the mind of the Jewish people, that wealth was always associated with favor. That if you have wealth, you are favored by God. If you are poor, then you are being cursed by God, and there's a reason for that. And so this, this problem in their mindset is readily seen when we look at the life of Job, remember Job, he was a very wealthy man, and uh, he had all of these possessions, and in a moment's time, all of it's taken from him, and what do his friends come and do? They say to him, well, if you hadn't have done something wrong, God wouldn't have taken all this from you, and that's why you're suffering. Now, let me make something very, very clear. Suffering is allowed by God in the life of faithful people. God allows suffering in the life of faithful people. If that were not the case, then you and I would have to deny the cross, because the greatest suffering was perpetrated upon the greatest and most faithful that ever lived. And we find faithful men going through suffering. In John chapter number 9, the blind man is sitting by the way and the apostles asked Jesus on their way "By for whose sin is this man born blind. And they automatically associated blind and suffering with God's opposition to that person and they associated wealth with God's blessing on that person so when this rich man comes walking up to Jesus he has everything that they would have thought represented God's blessing on them and he comes walking in and I can imagine even Judas himself kind of looking at this going hey man if we could get this guy in the church he could really help us out he could really start making some donations and that would be great and so Judas is maybe kind of rubbing his hands together about this guy gonna come because he's got some wealth and Jesus doesn't approach it that way at all. He begins to preach this message to this man, and the man walks away. And I kind of picture the apostles kind of like, hey, come back, you know. It's, it's kind of like when you bring a guest and you're like, Pastor, I brought a guest last week and you had to preach on that, you know, and now they're not coming back anymore. And Jesus gives this message and they all go away. This this rich man's out. He's gone now let me make something very clear this morning wealth is a privilege not a right we're not owed it better better said than that wealth is a responsibility to be handled not a right to be demanded that we've been given privileges to use our wealth for a purpose for his glory But now, in the whole of this context that we've been dealing with, all the way back in chapter number nine, and now through uh, the body of chapter 10, the question keeps coming up, who can enter the kingdom of God, and how can they enter? Who can enter the kingdom of God, and how how can they enter? And the question on our forefront right now is the idea, well, surely this man of great wealth and great righteousness will be able to enter the kingdom of God, and Jesus puts the kibosh on that. The rich young man's left, and it would grieve us this morning. I wonder, let me ask you this question, you can think on it. What would it grieve you to lose so much that you would walk away from Christ over it? What would it grieve you to lose so much that you would walk away from Christ over it? Now, I I hope that there is not a long list. I hope that there is nothing on that list this morning. Then I would ask you this question, maybe if you say, well, I don't know of anything that I own that I could lose. Well, let me ask you, What what is best, what is your best chance for a good life today? It's your best chance? What is that thing that you need to make life what it's supposed to be? And and I we ask these questions and we put so much weight on wealth and, I, you know, Savannah sometimes will be riding in the car and she'll say, hey, dad, what would you do if you had all the money in the world. And I'm like, well, if I understand economics, if I had all the money in the world, it wouldn't be worth anything. Because you guys would just make something else up that was money. And then I would be broke. But um, but I, I don't know. And then she said, well, what, what would you do have, if you had a billion dollars? And we imagine these things and we can almost uh, see ourselves running down a long list of things that we would do with this wealth But wealth was, in most areas of life, seen as an advantage. You understand that travel is blessed by wealth, you're able to see the world, and education is generally improved by people having uh, resources to purchase that education, and health care is better off, and housing and comfort level, and just the basic creature comforts of life are given to us because of wealth, and these are blessings from God. I think of my granddad Langley, he was born in uh, the early 1900s, 1917 he was born. And uh, I had the privilege of just growing up around him and so getting to hear those stories of him growing up. And uh, I, I would hear him tell the stories about uh, being a young boy on the farm. He grew up in, in southern, Ohio, southern Georgia, rather, and south Georgia, and he'd be on the farm and he'd say early in the morning the first thing we'd do is get up and I'd go over to the water bucket and knock the ice off the top of the bucket so I could get a scoop of water to drink. And that was the first thing in the morning. I'm picturing this in my mind. I'm like, that sounds fun. And uh, he said, then what we'd do is I'd go outside and I'd hitch up the mule to the plow. And I'd get him ready to plow all day long. And he said, then I'd go back inside and I'd get a piece of cornbread that my mom had cooked the night before. And I'd put it in a glass of milk. And I'd take that outside and I'd lean against that plow. And I'd eat my cornbread and milk until the sun came up. And then I'd start plowing. And I'd look at him like, man, those were the days. And he goes, oh, son, those were not the good old days. He said, I'm going to tell you what the good old days are. He said, the good old days is when I get up out of my chair and walk over to the wall and turn a dial and my house gets warm. He said, those are the good old days. And we can be blessed by the blessings that uh, advancement and wealth brings, and those are wonderful things. The problem is not having wealth. It's when wealth has us. In all of these areas, it seems that somehow or another wealth would be an advantage, save in one area. And that is the kingdom of God. In this area, wealth is an obstacle. It's not an advantage. It actually is going to stand in our way. And we, this morning, as we stand here uh, in wealthy people in the eyes of the world, we must examine this obstacle very closely. Now let's look at what Jesus turns and says to the apostles in verse 23. He said, and Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus looks around. What is he doing? He's looking to measure their response. He he sees their faces, and he it's almost as as the young man is walking away, and we see him going away with his head down as he walks away from this group of apostles. And Jesus turns the apostles and just looks them in the eye, and he says, "How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." And he's getting their eyes and seeing their reaction because he's not willing just to let this sit. The ESV in its translation of this is how difficult it will be. I like that. How difficult it will be for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus turns from his conversation with the ruler to continue continuous instruction to the apostles. He does not miss a chance to help them along. And he does not leave them with their preconceived ideas about wealth in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to leave you where you sit, he says. Jesus says it is difficult for those with riches to enter the kingdom of God difficult now that's a hard word and it's something i don't think we really want to associate when it comes to salvation we don't look at salvation and say what word would you use to describe salvation well the word i would use is difficult that's not how we describe it is it we say things like easy now i'm glad this morning that the gospel is a simple message It's such a simple message that a nine-year-old boy in Atlanta, Georgia could bow his knee and accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And the light of the gospel shone into my heart. But I got news for you. When it comes to the fallenness of our nature, man, it is not an easy thing to come to the gospel. It's difficult. And Jesus is laying this in front of them because he wants to expose the problem. Jesus said it is difficult for those with riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse number 24. Jesus had made this statement, and in verse 24, the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He's astonished at their words, blown away by this. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Now, we're not told that they said any kind of words to him, but we see the idea of maybe a shocked expression. They were staggering at the words that Jesus had just said. How can this be that this man, who was highly qualified for the kingdom of God, he describes everything that we thought should be. He knew the law. He had wealth. He had youth. He had strength. This describes the kingdom of God, doesn't it? And Jesus said, no, that's not the kingdom of God, except you become, as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This man is just the opposite of all of that. You see, I wonder this morning as we read the words of God, are we ever listening close enough to be staggered by what God has said? As you read in your daily reading, as you read through the scriptures, does it ever just go, what? Does it ever hit us with a weight that it should hit us? And by the way, if it doesn't, I don't think it's because we got it all figured out. I think we're not careful. We get very accustomed to the word of God and we pass over what is being said. Here, these men are shocked by what they're hearing. It's hitting them right where they live and it's bothering them greatly. John Wesley was said to have had his house burned down, and some people came running to him. They said, John, your house is burned. And he said, That's impossible. And they said, no, it's not. It's not impossible. Your house burned to the ground. And he said, no, it's impossible. And he said, John, we were there. We saw your house burn. He said, that's impossible. You see, I don't own a house. He said, God gave me a place to live. I only manage that house for him. And if he doesn't put the fire out, then that's his problem. He'll have to put me up somewhere else tonight. You know, what a good place to be Then we could let go of things to that degree. You know, I wonder how many times that the loss of things would rock our world to such a degree that we would doubt God. And here the apostles are being confronted with this fact that somehow or another you can't enter the kingdom of God if you're wrapped around riches and they're like, that doesn't make sense. They're astonished by it. Now, if you and I were Jesus and we see somebody's perplexity on this, maybe we would say, okay, let's let off a little bit and give them a break, let them think about that for a little while. But well, that's not what he does. He presses and further. And verse number 24, he continues on. But Jesus answered again and said to him, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He just presses the thing even further still. And literally here uh, we see for them that trust in riches This is applied words for us to give us the context. But literally the wording of the verse is how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it is a difficult thing. This is not not an easy thing. How difficult, but I'm glad he didn't say it's not impossible. He didn't say it's impossible. He said it was a difficult thing. So how is it that we enter the kingdom of God? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Well, apparently those who have no selfish ambition can enter the kingdom of God. Because don't be lording over other people. That's chapter 9. Apparently those whose hand and eye and feet do not offend them. Or at least they've severed their hand, eye, and foot if somehow or another it is offending them. Those could enter the kingdom of God. Those without pride can enter the kingdom of God. Those that have become a little child can enter the kingdom of God. Those that have wealth that's not a hindrance to them, they can enter the kingdom of God. I mean, you see the obstacles that are building up here, and this is becoming a, a, a frustration because what in the world, Jesus? I mean, this is This is heavy. How can we enter the kingdom of God? And let me make something very clear. Salvation has always been a miracle. It's never been a work of man. It's always been a miraculous thing that anyone could come into the kingdom of God. And Jesus still doesn't let up. He said, let me push this thing a little bit further because I want you to get this and I don't want you to miss it. And he presses in in verse 25. He said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he's using a euphemism, some, some say, well, this is talking about a geographic location that was a very narrow passage that camels would pass through and they would have to unburden the camel and make him low down and crawl through and, and it was a process. But that's not what we're talking about here, I don't believe. Matthew and Mark both uh, refer to this as a sewing needle and Luke uses it as a surgical needle and he, he's pointing, I believe, to an actual needle. I think the picture here that Jesus has in mind is a needle in his hand with an eye in the needle, and he says it is easier for that camel to go through this eye of this needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You're like, well, that's impossible. That's the point. He's basically looking at him and he said, "Look, a rich man's going to go to heaven when pigs fly." That's how we would say it, right? All right, a rich man's going to go to heaven uh, when, when when you can get blood out of a turnip. He's using a term like this that means something that is declaring the impossible, or they'll make snow cones where the boogeyman lived before a rich man will go to heaven. He's trying to, he's using a phrase that would get them to think of something that is impossible to men, and he wants them to get to the place that they're about to get to. He's doing this on purpose. If I were to review verse 23, 24, and 25, here's how it would be, and I'm just putting it in my paraphrase or my expressions here Jesus says to them it's difficult for rich men to enter the kingdom the disciple says what how can that be and Jesus responds it's difficult in general to enter the kingdom and it's impossible for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom because salvation has never been within your grasp in the first place Salvation has been never been something that you could earn or produce or work your way to. It's never been something that you could get your arms around. And so then what is the response here? Look at verse number 26. And they were astonished beyond measure. If we were down south, I would say they were flabbergasted. They're blown away by this. They're astonished beyond measure. They're like, I can't get my head around this they were besides themselves they are about to lose their composure so what do they do they cry out in despair they're murmuring above themselves in verse 26 saying among themselves who then can be saved and Jesus says that's exactly right that's the question I've been trying to get you to ask. For the last chapter and a half, we've been saying, who can enter the kingdom of God? And now you're asking the right question. Who can enter the kingdom of God? Who then can be saved? Who has the ability to enter in? Is it wealth? Is it power? Are these the things that's going to get us in? It's a desperate cry. Who then can be saved? Well, not ambitious power seekers, they can't be saved. Not those that would offend a little one, they can't be saved. Not those whose hands and eye and feet offend them or cause them to sin. How many of you this morning could testify you don't have to raise your hand, that at some point your hands, your eyes, or your feet have made you sin? Yeah. Well, then you can't be saved. Not those that would be justified in their own selves about how good they are, they can't be saved. Those who will not be humble as a child, they can't be saved. And those who trust in riches or have confidence in riches, they can't be saved. He's like, Pastor, this is overwhelming. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted the apostles. To say, who can be saved? Because what is Jesus trying to say? He's trying to say the same thing Paul said. In Romans chapter number 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can't enter in on your own. You can't make this. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't stop the story here. Aren't you glad that though he gets us to a place of despair, he doesn't leave us in despair? That at the moment of despair, when it seems like there's no hope, Jesus comes in with an answer. And in verse number 27, he gives that answer in such power. And Jesus looking upon them. Get this now. He looks upon them. And this this is a little different. Before, he's kind of sweeping the crowd and trying to get a view of what's happening in the room and getting a very quick look. But this is looking upon them intently. It's kind of making eye contact. Kind of like what you do with your kids. You know, are you done with your kids or your grandkids even? No, you look at me right now. I'm going to go upstairs. And when I come back, this better be clean. I said, look at me. Jesus is getting their eyes. He wants to see that they're listening. And he's focusing in. And by the way, your eyes help me know that you're listening, by the way. That's just a side point. Um, Jesus gets their eyes. He said, here's what I'm saying. Listen close. And here's the hope that he gives in verse 27 with men, it is impossible, but not with God. With men, it is impossible, With not with God. Jesus says, look, here's the reality. Who can be saved? No one if it's up to men. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God if it's up to men. But aren't you glad this morning it's not up to men? That they aren't the way that we get in in the first place. You and I aren't up to the way we get in in the first place. It is only through the work of Jesus Christ that we enter in. It is his work of quickening us. You understand this morning that God can take a self-righteous, proud sinner who is full of himself, willing to oppress others to get to where he wants to go, willing to exalt himself any opportunity he has, and he can take that person, save that person from a Christless hell, and then call Mike Montgomery to preach. And by the way, that's exactly what he did. He takes a heart of stone and he turns it to a heart of flesh. He takes a, a person who is an enemy and makes him a child. See, with God, all things are possible. What a Savior. We can look through Scripture, right? And we can see the Apostle Paul who was doing what he could to destroy the way. And yet in a moment on the road to Damascus, God shines a light down and blinds his human eyes but opens up his heart. And everything is changed. Probably my favorite account of this happening in the Bible is Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was this powerful man. You talk about somebody that was proud of his accomplishments and his riches. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking around, look at all I've built, this great empire of Babylon. Look at all that I've done. He's rejoicing in it. He's boasting in it. Man, all of this has been accomplished by my wisdom and my might. King James says he was flourishing in his palace. I, I don't know what flourishing looks like, but I don't even know how to act that one out. But he was flourishing. Here he is in his palace and he's, everything is exactly the way he wants it to be. And he has a little dream, and it bothers him. And Daniel comes in and says, hey, the tree you saw cut down and a stump left represents you. God's going to come in and cut you down from your throne. He's going to place you in a field, and you're going to eat grass like an animal, and your hair will grow out like eagle's feathers, and your claws will grow long, and you will be nothing but an animal in the field. And he said, but then there's going to come a time where God's going to set you back up on the throne again. And you'll see things differently then. And the text would have us believe that Nebuchadnezzar kind of passed off the thing like, "Ah, it must have been the anchovies on the pizza. Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about. And he goes on about his business. And then God brings him down. And in a moment, this most powerful king in all the world is down on all fours, and he's mowing grass with his teeth, and his claws have grown out, and his hair grows out long, and all of this is taking place, and Nebuchadnezzar is humbled to the ground. And you know, the amazing thing here to me is not that God can take a sinner and humble them. The amazing thing to me that God can take a sinner who's been humbled and set him up and God takes that king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is down in the pig pen like the prodigal son. And the Bible says that his reasoning came to himself. And he said, and I will extol the God of heaven. And he rejoiced in who God was. And he said, I know this, that God, the who, man who walks in pride, God is able to abase. And he sets him up on the throne. An amazing thing, his counselors come back to him and seek counsel of him. I mean, this guy was eating grass in the field, and now he's sitting back on the throne. And let me make something very clear. God sets up whom he chooses over men. Don't, don't worry on that. God's still in charge of that. I mean, if he can take a man eating grass in the field and sit him on a throne, he can put anybody in charge. I mean, we've had some presidents who smoked some grass but not ate grass. He was eating grass, and they put him on a throne. I challenge you this morning to see the picture of what God does. He humbles us down to the ground that he might show us that he is only the only hope. And with man it is impossible, but not with God. Peter responds, as always Peter does. Peter's mind's running ahead, you know. And he goes, hold on a second, we left everything for you. What do we get for it? Is there a prize in the cereal box since we got ahead of the game and we've kind of forsaken all? Remember when I left the nets and the boat and everything? And here we are now. Is there is, do we get like an early attendee prize? He's anxious to know. He's overachieving and Jesus responds to him in verse number twenty eight and twenty nine. Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or land, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold, now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecution in the world to come eternal life. Jesus lays this for him, and basically what we see is Jesus quoting a, a, a common uh. Poetry or phrase that would describe the kingdom of God and the blessings of it. And he's saying basically, in this present time, you are not going to lose more than you gain. And in the present time, you will face persecution. But in the world to come, and that's where our hope really lies, you will have eternal life. You see, not because you have forsaken all will you receive these things, but because Christ has been forsaken of all. You will have these things jesus is pointing them immediately to this resurrection passage that comes next jesus is wanting them to see that what we gain in christ here uh, what we gain in christ can never be lost and what we hold from this life can never be kept You can't hold tightly enough to the things of this world to hold on to them. There are no U-Hauls behind a hearse. You're not taking it with you. And we so often want to wrap our arms around the things of this world and we want to hold them tightly. But we can't hold on to them. And Jesus is saying to Peter, hey look, there's nothing that you have gained in Christ that can be taken from you. And there is nothing in this life that can be kept. It's all about the eternal we will face blessings and persecution, but in the end, we will have eternal life. Jesus gives that hope to the apostles. And then he ends with verse number 31 with this very f- familiar phrase by now to us, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. We look at this and we think, what, what, what does this mean again? Well, the way down is the way up and the way up is the way down. It's the opposite way that we think. We think the way up is to climb over people, and yet Jesus said, no, you need to humble yourself and serve. You see, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Trusting him to raise us up. You see, let me just say this morning, let us as believers and in our family and our home stop worrying over rankings. God doesn't measure like that. God doesn't measure the same way do we do. He's not looking to see who's the greatest. This came to my mind, but my wife and I were talking and the kids we were in the car. Nobody has a race to see who can do it the slowest. Nobody nobody sees who can eat the least. We see who can eat the most. Everything's about fast and speed and how we can get there and we're pushing forward and pushing forward. And Jesus is saying, Look, I'm not gonna measure you by how high you climb, but by how low you go. Are you willing to humble yourself? Stop worrying over rankings. How can all of this be so? How can all this be happening? Well, verse 32 to 34, Jesus unfolds the gospel again. Again, he says, look, guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be killed. And then I'll rise again the third day. And the last will be first. And the first will be last. And the definition of that phrase is the summary of the gospel that Jesus, who was rich, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be rich. Jesus says, I'm going down that you might come up. Now, I wish that these guys would hear this and go, okay, we got it now. You want us to be humble and serve But the very next text after he gets talking about the gospel, uh, Peter and James walk up, uh, James and John walk up to him and say, hey, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? Because, you know, we want to be somebody in your kingdom. They're still not getting it. And by the way, how many times have we heard it? And yet we still don't get it. We still struggle for preeminence in our marriages. We still struggle for preeminence with our brothers and our sisters. We struggle for preeminence with other pastors and other friends. We dread the Christmas letter coming because somebody's going to be doing better than we are. And we wrestle for that in our own hearts and minds. And Jesus said, let the last be first and the first be last. You are never going to lose out by giving everything you have to Christ. The apostles were not understanding the suffering and the humility that he was calling them to. But they came to a place where they were asking the right questions. Who can be saved? Well, if it's up to man, nobody. If it's up to God, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The hope of the gospel is still clear. Make this very clear. God's plan for our good and our blessing always leads through the cross, not around it. The gospel always leads us Through the cross and not around it. But get this. This is what I love about it. Look in verse number, and let's see. I want you to be in verse number 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. On the way to the cross now. And Jesus went before them. I like that. He went before them. He was paving the way. And though we do go through the cross, remember this, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He's leading the way through. When he says to us, the first will be last, and the last will be first, he then says, hey, watch this. And he goes to the cross. And what is he demonstrating for us? This is how you be the first and the last. Lay down your life that others might see Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I pray that you would take what has been said this morning and add your blessing to what is said, Lord, but do a work in our hearts. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts and eyes and ears to hear and understand. Lord, help us, too, to be asking the right questions. Holy Spirit of God, do a work that only you can do in us and through us. Let's stand to our feet this time and we're going to sing together. Watch people said? Amen. Amen. Good to be in the Lord's house together today. Let me remind you again of the 20th. Make sure you mark it down in your calendar for our growth group Sunday and want you to be aware of that and keep praying for it if you would. Thank you so much for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you on Wednesday night. Have a good evening.